Hi, everyone. This is part two of our interview with Jonathan Worthington, where we talk about theological education and particularly development of virtue. We're going to jump right into the conversation since this is part two. Hope you enjoy. Now, most of the people we're training or serving are going to be adults, just in general. So why does it matter that we pay attention specifically to research on adult learning specifically? Yeah. So uh, first of all, a lot of people use the term pedagogy really broadly, and I'm cool with that. That's just the way we talk. If you get technical, pedagogy means to guide children. Um, and andragogy, therefore, means to guide adults. And in education, it's specifically, how do you guide a child in learning something? That's pedagogy. How do you guide an adult in learning something? That's andragogy. And the, the fundamental thing to, to recognize is that, that children and adults function differently than each other in education. And they do that in a few crucial ways. Uh, For example, a child has to go to school in in lots of countries. Uh, They don't have a choice in that. They're not choosing to go to school. That actually creates a situation where they are more able and willing to learn things that they're not asking to learn. Mm. Uh, Because that's just the nature of the beast. That's what you do. I have to be at school. I got to learn whatever the teacher tells me to learn. And they do. But usually adults go back to learning for a very specific reason. Something's going on in their life that has prompted them to want to know more or do better. So they're coming with with very specific ideas, which is both really helpful and hard at the same time. The hard part, if a group of students, adults, let's say say they're pastors in rural Malawi, that's one of the places we, we train pastors, let's say they're coming because they recognize that they want to be more effective pastors for God's glory and they don't know how. So they come to this training and, and we may ask them to learn things that they never thought they needed and they can't see why they need it. A kid can still do that fairly effectively. An adult's going to really struggle to learn something that he or she does not see as relevant and is not the reason they came. So that that makes it harder, actually, which means I think the teacher needs to think harder about helping them see relevance, getting back to this extrinsic motivation, helping them see why why is this good and and actually relevant, even though you don't see it right now. But the positive side is that that they bring a, a hunger to learn. They're there to learn. And so you don't have to motivate them in some ways that that kids might need it. Who, who don't care about learning. They're just made to be there. So, so that's one aspect about the dynamics of who a, an adult is in education and who students are that, that affects how you do things. Another aspect is that adults come with lots of experience, which kids don't have. And that plays out in a few different ways for adults in the classroom. For one, their learning and the learning of everybody there, kind of the communal learning, can be so much more rich and profound when their experiences are brought into the, mm. the, the situation, mm. when they're kind of tapped into, you know, you, you've seen this happen. What was your experience like, et cetera? That can really enhance their learning. 
their own life experiences. There's a downside. It can also make it hard to unlearn if they've learned some very unhealthy ways to think or do something. But again, just knowing that is really helpful for thinking through, how am I going to do this theology class? These are adults. These are not kids. Yeah. And most of the times when I've witnessed or been a part of or participated in some kind of a training, teaching, whatnot, whether formal or informal, it tends to end up being more kind of model, a little similar to teaching kids. In Mm. terms of what I mean is like abstract points, Mm -hmm. bigger principles, by contrast with adult learning, you say that there needs to be a lot more focus on life situations, right? problem Mm -hmm. solving, things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't tend to get that as much, I think, in these kind of training situations, it tends to be at the more like, I kind of get out of seminary and then, you know, the big, the big ideas. So, but you know, every time I've tried that in my teaching, I've struggled with this back and forth because, and this is just on the assessment side, but maybe you want to get into the, actually the teaching aspect of it, but at least on the assessment side, it seemed like everything in the class went away and then they just kind of talk about whatever they want to talk about. And and it's like, there's this big disconnect, Hmm. obviously because of my failings that during the class, apparently I was not integrating you know, the big picture and the situational well enough. So right. can you maybe unpack what this mm-hmm. situational slash project kind of right. orientation looks like in, in training? Yeah. One of the, one of the ways I've seen this play out and that this dovetails really well with, with some of the motivational stuff that we've already talked about. One of the ways that Western seminaries and that Western schools and maybe younger schools in other places as well run things has to do with subjects. They're kind of this abstract thing that you cover. There's this thing called mathematics. There's this thing called theology. There's this thing called ecclesiology. It's like a a bubble that you can turn and analyze and look at. It's this Mm -hmm. thing. It's quite abstract. But in life, the people, the men and women who are coming for the training are are doing things in life that bump up against how they understand church or think about why is the pastor there? Why did King Jesus give pastors and teachers to the church? Mm-hmm. That's that's getting at ecclesiology, but it's, it's completely life situational, meaning they're just doing this. This is all over their life. And so then for them to shift from life situation that, that are focused on lots of relationships and, and organic things to come into a classroom where you start blocking things off, making them abstract to analyze that. That's just hard. It's hard to reconnect. So one of the just very practical ways that we've approached this kind of thing is one of our courses that we've developed for non-formal theological education is you could call it theology bibliology or theology, scripture, doctrine of scripture and ecclesiology, something like that. But we've titled it. And then we, we have the, the feel throughout the whole thing. We've titled it knowing God, scripture and ourselves. And it's focused on, so we get into Trinity, we get into attributes of God, but all of it is fundamentally knowing God. What is it about knowing God that comes out in knowing him as father, knowing him as son, as spirit, distinct, yet, yet one God. So, uh, or knowing scripture. So not just bibliology or prolegomena or whatever our seminaries, uh, however they've covered them, but knowing scripture 
actually listening to the God who is speaking through various authors at various times and places and genres. It's about knowing God. Mm -hmm. It's very dynamic, relational, and it's exactly the life situations they're in. So we're trying to keep it that way, even in the classroom. Yeah. That's just one practical example. So as I hear you talking, I think through my experience, here's here, I'll run a few ideas past you and see if this fits with what you're talking about. Yeah. It seems like one approach might be in tool might be to use case studies. Mm-hmm. Another might be solve a problem. Like here's a problem guys. And we're going to dissect it and talk about the implications of this and that and so forth. That's going to interweave, be very integrative. And then it seems like another maybe is, teaching method slash assignment would be developing something, developing mm -hmm. a tool, developing, mm -hmm. or, you know, something that they can use. Are those the kind of things that would fit with adult learning? I think those are excellent. Uh, case study is one of the big ones that people will bring up with this kind of thing. But each of the three you just mentioned uh, are right in line with this. Okay. One example, um, we're right now trying to develop our, our ninth and final non-formal course and the assignment, so you mentioned assignment, the assignment that, that these trainees, these men and women are doing is they need to figure out how to, how to guide other people to, to be ministers. Mm. So a pastor, I mean, we look at it in terms of Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers are given the job of equipping the saints for works of ministry. Mm -hmm. So the, the saints build each other up in love into Christ. So Yes, you can, you've learned hopefully how to preach and teach in a biblically sound and relevant way, but can you actually raise up others to do counseling for mm -hmm. hurting people or to nurture children in the Christian community? So that's kind of the task. And so instead of just telling them this kind of abstract assignment, we, we create a scenario. Mm. Now, suppose you have four people from your church this is in, in the jungles of, of Luzon, Philippines, one of the places we, we work with them. You've got four people from, from your church who really have a heart for counseling people who are struggling with all sorts of difficulties. How can you let's create a plan now? Take this passage, understand it you know, helpfully and relevantly, but now take the next step and train them to be Christ-honoring, biblically sound counselors of hurting people. So it's kind of a scenario. They've come yeah. to you. You're sitting at your, you know, on the ground in your village with them. What do you do with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's so much here to chew on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let me uh, move to uh, some of this, these. You're getting into some of the kind of principles of, of teaching here. Mm, right. You mentioned a temptation that we really got to try to avoid that we end up typically having too much information that we want yeah. to get across in a short time. And so we rush to get through it. Oh my goodness. I am the greatest of all sinners in this respect. Oh, God. oh man, I know. <laughs> I, and, I know and, it so well. <laughs> and I find myself there again and I go, I did it again. And I go, I That's don't know right. what else to do. So here we go. The rush. <laughs> just go for it. We've got to get don't, through this. Guy. Just don't learn. Do I? <laughs> Some of your principles for shaping the content, and the curriculum seem to be to me to be really, really helpful for orienting. Can you go through those three principles? Yeah, yeah. We all make that, that same mistake. And, and I do think it's a mistake, but a very common one. The idea that, oh, we've got tons to get through. Let's, we just need to kind of put our heads down and get through it. In that idea is content is most important. 
which kind of neglects the idea of skill. Uh, the more content you pack in, the less time you have to, to teach skills and let them practice skills that they're supposed to then go out and use, but you haven't given them any time to do them in a guided way. So content uh, is very heavy. And also often something behind that error is I am fundamentally here to, to teach, meaning to say things. I need to get through this material. But the question of, yeah, but are they actually learning that? Mm. That's a different question. Mm. And so imagine this is well-documented in educational literature in terms of how much people tend to actually learn or absorb in a given time frame. Imagine if you wanted to go through 10 bits of information in a you know, two-hour block or whatever. Mm-hmm. How much are they actually getting? Even if you do say those 10 things, you know, teach those 10 things, yeah. well, they'll walk away and they might have two of them, actually. And even the two that they have, they may not actually have learned them in, in a depth that would be most helpful. You've said the 10, but they may have walked away with two relatively shallow. What if you were to cut out seven and focus on three things? Same amount of time. Well, but you start going in deeper into those three things, those fewer things, Mm -hmm. and you start exploring those three because you have time exploring them from different angles involving um, not just cognition, but emotions, affections, practice. You actually have time for them to practice skills. Mm -hmm. By the end of that time frame, they actually have grasped three things more deeply, whereas Mm -hmm. before, although you covered 10, they only got two and not necessarily as deep. Mm -hmm. So- we might say as a teacher, yeah, but I have 10 things to cover. And if I only cover three, they're getting less. Uh, uh. Well, actually they're getting significantly more mm. because people learn differently than, than we think. Oh, so good. So first off, you're saying go deeper in a fewer areas. That's, that's yeah, a good that's, word. That's our major principle. Go deeper in fewer areas. Oh, that's so good. That reminds me, I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary mm-hmm. for my mm-hmm. MDiv. And they do book studies a little different than a lot of other places do. Hmm. Their focus wasn't so much on like the book itself, like theology of Matthew, the theology of whatever. Hmm. They use the books as simply tools, mediums to to reinforce exegesis, the use of the language. And so like one of my favorite classes was taught by Gordon Hugenberger. It was the theology Hmm. of the Pentateuch. And never... In the history of him teaching the class, I've heard, did he get past uh, Genesis 11? <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and yeah. Like, there's a whole lot of bands who didn't get to, but it was, right. but every course was like that where you might not get past, you know, chapter two, three, whatever, because mm-hmm. you're really, really applying this, these interpretive methods and principles of language skills so that, you know, when you leave, you can keep going and learning, but you can do that with any book. As opposed to simply memorizing some facts about whatever Mm -hmm. book you're talking about. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, 
Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. Our second principle is focus on skills while being rich in content. So a lot of people have an either or. Are you skills focused or content focused? Mm. Do you do you want to fish and give the person the fish so that they can eat because they're starving? Or do you want to teach the person to fish skills so that they can feed themselves for the rest of their lives? And I actually think those two, and a lot of people now think this, that they go together. You can't actually have one without the other, but it does matter what you spend more time and explicit emphasis on. And so our principle is focus on skills while being rich in content. That goes well with the first principle of going deeper in fewer areas for exactly the thing that you're mentioning. Suppose you want to train pastors to know how to understand and communicate and apply narrative in the Bible. And there's so much narrative in the Bible. Well, you could just kind of dip in and out shallowly in lots of examples of narrative. You can go to Genesis and Exodus. Uh, you can go into Joshua and First and Second Chronicles. You can jump to all the Gospels and Acts, etc. Or you can go into fewer things, but go deeper, focusing on the skills of exegesis, interpretation, application, that they can then transfer to other things. So we build these into our method of even designing the course because we don't want somebody to go in to say Genesis or Pentateuch and only get through chapters 1 to 11. We'd rather choose on the front end what we're going to go into depth. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we have a course on understanding and communicating Gospels, and we choose uh, Mark as an example, and we choose about, I think it's seven passages. Mm -hmm throughout the whole thing, carefully chosen. So they're getting rich content that is an example of Mark, you know, so they're not just randomly chosen passages. Uh, so they're getting good content of Mark, but they're actually focusing on the skills of exegesis mm. and communication with carefully chosen passages. So by the end, they understand Mark. They understand how to interpret any gospel because they focused on skills while getting rich content because we went deeper in only in fewer areas. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but this is a really good place to talk about a, mm -hmm. a quote that I think the idiom is stop the music moment. You know, so, I haven't been back in America in a long time. So my English is a little bad, but it was like, right. one of those like, hold on, hold on. I got to reread that. You said in one article, you said focusing on depth and practice enhances the possibility of increased spiritual formation, habits of the heart, and virtue acquisition. Mm -hmm. It's like you didn't get the memo that we're supposed to be either or here. <laughs> and you're Man, putting I them, missed that one, didn't I? <laughs> and you're putting them together, you know, deeper learning skills and then virtue. All right. right. Where'd that come from? Unpack that. <laughs> so that that is a quote from um, from that article I wrote with my dad. Uh, a few years ago, I think it was, yeah, 2018 came out. It's called Spiritual Formation by Training Leaders in Their Indigenous Cultures. And then the subtitle, you know, this is one of those lovely academic articles, <laughs> that's like 10 sentences as the subtitle. 
Well, the subtitle is The Importance of Cultural Humility and Virtue Theory. So we tried to come from the psychological and biblical perspectives together, uh, my dad and I, uh, to think about cultural humility and virtue theory, virtue formation, and how does that play out or affect training leaders in their indigenous contexts, which is what TLI tries to do. So that's where the that's where the quote comes from. That's where virtue comes Let from. Let me jump in on that point because easily readers hear that and go, well, I'm not reading that article. And yeah, I'll, right. I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I, that was the one of the last articles I read of this stuff you've written <laughs> because I thought, I already know what he's going to say. We need to be humble. We need to teach virtue, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You know, right. I, you know, I mean, how, geez, when am I going to learn my lesson? So I read it and at midway through, I'm like, whoa, yeah, this is really practical. This is really helpful. And so just if you hear this out there, yes, go ahead and read it. I know it's a long title, but it, it's sorry it's about that. <laughs> but please go ahead. Go ahead. How's this connect? How this connect together? This skills, yeah. practice, and then virtue. Right. So one of the ideas of of gaining virtue, building virtue, including habits of the heart. So things that that just by nature, you, you've learned to do kind of, kind of as an instinct, you, your heart has a habit and they're virtuous, or that's the goal. There are three aspects to developing a virtue in this way. One of them is, is called glimpsing the goal. So, I mean, what are you even going for? One of the things that we do in our training is we try to always have the goal in front. You know, why, why are we looking at these passages? What are we actually trying to do? Now remember, we're trying to serve, uh, to honor God around the world by serving his people, helping them nurture each other in the faith, uh, including evangelizing and discipling new believers and planting churches. So all that stuff. What are we doing here? So this glimpsing the goal. Another key aspect, and this is crucial to what you're bringing up here, is practicing the virtue, practicing it rhythmically a lot and in good ways. One of the problems we've already talked about with trying to do too much in a theology course is that there is no time or space for actually practicing anything. But practice is essential for developing a habit of the heart mm. and forming a virtue in a person's life. So this is where virtue theory and our andragogical theories or our educational ideas, they start to come together. Going deeper and fewer things doesn't just allow you to explore a topic in more cognitive depth. It, it also enables you to, to connect your emotions with it. So it's more full person, which is important for virtue, but it also it gives you space and time with your students to actually practice some of the skills you're giving them. Practice, and this is what I mean by practice, and this is what we do, uh, this kind of a rhythm of practice. We get a passage of scripture, we engage the text, and there are certain ways we do it. We start with how are we impacted by this text? So, so many Western education systems jump into analysis first, but scripture is not written to be analyzed first. It's actually written to do something in its hearers. Mm. So we start with, hey, look, before we pick it apart and analyze it and put it back together, what, is, what did it do in you when you read this poem? It's a poem. How did it affect you? Now, our impulses might be wrong, 
you know, we, we all might come with, with like a bad understanding and get impacted wrong, but it's still important. So we start with that impact. Then once we start wrestling, engaging the text with each other, we might correct our initial interpretation and impact and start being impacted in a more healthy way. So we engage the text cognitively and emotionally. We reflect on certain aspects of the text. We discuss as a community uh, certain skills of exegesis and communication, and then we praise or pray whatever seems fitting uh, according to the text that we've just been doing. So establishing this pattern and having actual space in the classroom, time and space to do this over and over, this is kind of part of forming a virtue of, I mean, there are all sorts of virtues, humility. I'm actually listening to the text to God by engaging, by reflecting, by discussing, by praising. And then again, by engaging, by reflecting, by discussing, by praising. So it builds through practice. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why this jumped out at me is, is that a really impactful book I read was N.T. Wright's After You Believe, When Christian mm. Character Matters. Yeah. And he applies mm. virtue theory to Christian formation, to character development, ethics. And basically the idea is like your character is what you do out of habit. Mm-hmm. And it seems to coming from a different angle, a different direction. It seems a little bit of what you're saying here is what are the skills, the practices that you're developing more instinctually, that's going to be what forms virtue and character in you. Right. Yeah, it's taken that same principle, uh, swiped and tweaked a bit from some of the, the virtue writing philosophies of the Greeks that have been reflected on for a few thousand years now, and, uh, and kind of wrestling with what, has that, what does that look like in theological training? You know, in a lot of theological training, it, it can be piecemeal. You have one teacher teach that, mm-hmm. another teacher teach this. But you guys actually have a sequence of skills that you guys teach, or you call mm-hmm. micro skills, across the curriculum, which right. is just a gorgeous strategy because you can build on it and you mm-hmm. can deepen it and, and repeat it. I mean, I've done a lot of reading on like the psychology of learning and so forth, and yeah. really taps into that. Can you explain a little bit? Mm-hmm. Like say from say course one to six or whatever, you know, yeah. just give people a little idea of, of how you kind of build on some of these micro skills. Yeah. It, it's a really exciting aspect that we've been working on now for about four years. It started with the, the discomfort that I have personally had and my colleagues have had with, you know, trying to help people, pastors understand and practice let's say expository preaching or teaching. And in a lot of education, kind of preaching training, the, the task that's given every single course is, okay, now preach a sample sermon. So we'll learn something and now you get to preach a sample sermon. And then the next time learn something, preach a sample sermon, which that has benefits to. I'm not gonna slam that whole thing, but it, it's not as helpful as it could be. Partly because there's so many things so many dynamics that go into preaching or teaching, into an understanding and then communicating with relevance. There's so many things that go into that called micro skills fit within the big skill of preaching or teaching. So what if we were to isolate or focus on one of the smaller skills in course one and actually have deliberate thinking and, and teacher engagement with doing that skill? And then course two so, and then course two, let's add a micro skill and have some f- specific practice and teacher, uh, teacher 
education with that. And then over the course of nine courses, which is what we do for our program, three years, nine courses, they've built these small aspects with help from the teacher and practice. And when they get to course seven, which is on prophecy, and we use Isaiah, they actually preach a, a sermon on a passage in Isaiah, but they've They've already been practicing about five micro skills and now are putting it together. And then course eight, they preach a sermon on revelation because course eight is on apocalyptic literature. And then course nine goes even beyond. But those micro skills are things like, can you even just summarize the main point of a passage? Yeah, I mean, that's an aspect of preaching. Absolutely. So let's focus on that and just do that and practice it and get feedback. It seems like that sort of intentionality, not winging it like people we can often do, whether it be in formal teaching or informal teaching, but right. if you're intentional, yeah. it all actually frees you up to focus, to, to go deeper in, because you know they're mm -hmm. going to get this later and they're going where they're going to come back to this. And so there's a bit of, it seems like it would give you more freedom. It does. And so we'll have, we'll have notes for teachers in earlier courses saying things like, it's going to be really tempting to, to go into this in a lot of detail, um, but they're going to get that in course three. So please don't <laughs> restrain yourself knowing it is coming and focus on the things here. There's an intention and there's a building process. Yeah. It, it is free. Yeah. So one of, one of the micro skills uh, is about application. Can you apply the... Uh, kind of the, the essence of this passage to yourself and a group of people in, in a few different ways and, and reason why these are legitimate applications. You're, you're not just making stuff up. They're not stretches, but these are, you know, good responsible applications. Well, we focus on that in one like course four, something like that. So that's just one exa another example of their micro skills to be yeah. focused on intentionally that do build into preaching and teaching and then raising up others to do so. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that one of the reasons why maybe our students don't apply what they learn is because their teachers aren't applying it <laughs> you know, like yeah. as, they're, yeah. as they're teaching. <laughs> that's right. That's, I think there's a lot to what you just said. <laughs> one of the things you said is that when you're building any virtue, the virtue has to be tested by life. Right. And so, you know, the trainees need concrete opportunities to apply the knowledge. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit as people think through, well, mm -hmm. how do I help people develop virtue and mm -hmm. what, what kind of opportunities are you referring to? Yeah. So that's the, the third aspect of developing virtues. I had mentioned glimpse the goal, see where you're trying to get to with a virtue. The second is practice in good ways, practice, practice, practice. The third is test, be tested, and be tested over a longer period of time. Those are kind of the three major things that de help develop a habit of the heart or a virtue. So how do we implement that in theological training or in our own lives? So one of the, the thing, one of the values, I'm not sure you could call this a virtue, but it certainly is a value, so I'll, I'll go for it. One of the values we try to impress on ourselves and those that we work with is that when we learn something about God, we share it. We try to raise somebody else up in it. And that's just the dynamic. That's what you do. So after every course, we'll send a team of teachers, we'll gather pastors for a week, intensive week, and that's one course spent together. 
Then for four months, they're back in their ministries, in their families, in their communities. And then four months later, we gather again for another week. And that's kind of the rhythm. So what do they do in those four months between? I mean, they, they've got lots to do in terms of life and ministry, but is there something intentional, even testing, practicing and testing of what they've learned in the course that they can do? And then when we come back, we can reflect with them on how it went and what might you do differently next time. And one of the things is teach to, to people in your context what you've just learned. And here is a translated teaching tool to do that in your own language. So gather people and, and teach it. That's hard, it's really hard. And so we have different people come up to us and with very different reasons why it was really hard, but why they fought through it. You know, one lady coming up in the Philippines, she's a, a Filipino missionary, Filipina missionary to another tribe in Luzon. And she said, I love some of this textual engagement we're doing, mm. you know, drawing circles around words and engaging, but I work with a group of ladies who can't read, mm. you know, are there ways, how can I do, how can I pass on this training to them? So she's kind of being put in a situation that's tough and it's going to test her, you know, her, her yeah. listening to the text, her engagement, all this, it's going to test it. So we've explored ways to, that she could try that. She tries it. She comes back and reflects, try, maybe tries it differently the next time. So that's one practical aspect of yeah. intentional testing as well as practice built into the very fabric of their ministries. going to get to the third principle that's great that people have to go read your stuff right. you know we yeah, talk yeah, about right. going deeper into fewer areas was first to focus on skills while being rich in content the third was i'll just say it was engage the text then theology <laughs> people's ears just went up what do you mean is, is theology oh, second what well go look at his article uh, a vision and philosophy for developing a curriculum for non-formal cultural Cross-cultural theological education. There's a mouthful. Oh, man. I need to work on my titles, don't I? <laughs> I like provocative <laughs> titles. Uh, maybe I should, you know, maybe I'd have more friends if I had longer titles like this. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> well, I'll put you all... You have more friends, but they don't read your stuff. <laughs> I'll uh, put uh, links to all of these articles in the show notes for people. So we've uh, had an awesome conversation so far. Let's close out with a few questions. Mm -hmm. I'll start with a softball. What if people are not doing formal theological training? What would you tell people to focus on in kind of transferring this to non-formal and just your normal discipleship? You know, there's a lot here. What would you say? Hey, start with thinking about this. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, um, most of these articles are actually about non-formal theological training. Hmm not formal, meaning, and, and I think you and I are using the term slightly differently, so I'll just clarify briefly. I'm using formal theological training to be about, it's in an institution, and you actually get a degree or a certificate from it. Okay. okay. Uh, Non-formal, it can be just built just as intentionally, but it's, it's not in an institution. There, nobody's getting any certificate from it. Mm. They're, they're just being trained to be equipped better. 
all of what I was just describing is actually what we use non-formally with just a group of gathered pastors and other leaders. That's one, one idea is this actually is built for non-formal and can be applied to formal theological training. But I think you're also asking about maybe broader, maybe, maybe informal training or discipleship. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I'd point to is um, the principles of go deeper in fewer areas I use in parenting mm. as well as in Sunday school, adult Sunday school, or some of the conversations we have at church. I was recently talking to one of our pastors. I'm a adjunct professor at a seminary here, and he was taking one of my classes, and, and we were exploring preaching. I mean, just a sermon. You know, sometimes we just try to cover too much in a sermon. Can a sermon be affected by this principle of going deeper in fewer areas? So that's one place to start is wrestle with, I should put something right before that. Before you wrestle with how little or much you do, maybe beg the question of when I'm engaging somebody, sort of like a teacher and a student or a parent and a, and a kid, or I'm just discipling them in some way, how do they learn? And therefore, how might I come at this moment, whether it's formal or whether it's over coffee or whether it's walking down the street with your daughter? How does she or how do they actually learn mm. rather than what do I just want to teach them? Yeah. Then once you kind of beg that or not beg the question, but uh, ask that question and, and kind of flip our normal way of thinking on its head, then say, OK, I was going to offer a lot of content, you know, give a lecture or whatever it was. They, they probably don't learn best like that. What is the most important thing I can do? You kind of focus on that and approach it from a lot of different ways cognitively what ideas emotionally how does this engage with them as at a deeper level so those are some some ideas yeah. of kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. start oh that's rich good you know this is a, our theology called doing theology thinking mission because we want to look at this intersection of missiology and theology because so often a practical there's such a distance in mm -hmm. disciplines not talking to each other and one question we like to ask people is what should theologians be learning from missionaries and missiologists and then vice versa? What should missionaries mm -hmm. and missiologists be learning from, you know, you know, biblical scholars and theologians? Mm -hmm. You're trying to get me in trouble, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's a, it's a very fair question that does get me and others in trouble because anytime you start saying that, that this person should learn from that person and vice versa, people's shackles go up. So one thing I would say is, in general, though not always, missiologists or missions practitioners have an awareness of cross-cultural dynamics. So again, not all, unfortunately, but generally have an awareness of cross-cultural differences, including some elements of cultural humility that you know, people living overseas, for example, have often learned oh, not everything I assumed or thought, not all of my patterns of thought are the only way to think about this or do this thing. It's, kind of, it's in their face every day. Not all theologians think that way. Um, you know, they're in a pattern of thinking. This is how I learned. This is how I'm thinking about this topic or this passage. And don't even think to ask questions as broadly as a missionary or a missiologist might. 
So one thing I think some theologians could learn from a lot of missiologists or, or missionaries is uh, kind of the, the humility of the other per, toward the other person and that your assumptions, just assumed pattern of thinking, even question that. Mm. That's not about abandoning truth. Yeah. So that would be a further discussion. Yeah, yeah. But it is about humility, including with God. Maybe not every way I'm thinking about God and his revelation is how he thinks about mm. himself and his revelation. So even that question is something that missionaries and missiologists are kind of forced to think through mm. uh, sometimes more than others. But you can flip that around and sometimes missiologists and oftentimes practical missionaries or, or practitioners, by the nature of what they do, it's, it's very practical, it's hands-on, and they deal with a lot of immediate situations and might not get the chance to be as strategic or, or think as, as fully. So I'm saying not all, you know, so there are lots of missiologists that are, are highly yeah. strategic in their thinking. Yeah. But a lot of theologians, that's what they practice. That's what, that's what they try to do is to, to dig deeper and deeper and ask more questions and explore. So that skill, that would be helpful for, for a lot of missionaries and some missiologists to, uh, to kind of wrestle with picking yeah. up from those theologians. Oh, that's so good. That's really good. Uh, well, we could talk, be talking for hours and days on and I'm, I'm certain. Love so love what sort of things are you working on these days from here? One of the most juicy ones, I'm working on this idea of oral learning. People who are oral, not literate, or who can read quite well, but are oral preference in how they learn. How are those two groups of people different as learners? Well, I mean, that, there's a lot of literature on that. But one thing we're experimenting with in TLI is I have a friend uh, who is a spoken word artist Hmm. And she has been analyzing aspects of our curriculum for the past hmm. few years and offering ways of approaching our wording in key moments that is more sensitive to oral, the realm of oral thinking, rhythmic, memorable, and repeatable kind of thing. So engaging a rap artist or spoken word artist to help us Westerners, highly literate people think about doing theological education in a more oral preference context. I love experimenting with this. And I'm right now writing up a, an article trying to grapple with it in a little more meaty way. Oh, so that's, man. that's one uh, fun. You couldn't see me because my camera's not working, but I, I, I about jumped out of my seat because one of the things I just wrote down, I go, I want to urge him to think how to apply this stuff to an online environment and to an oral environment. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, and because I've I've written a, a reasonable amount on orality and yeah. honor shame mm -hmm. stuff. So like this is really a heartbeat of mine. And yeah. oh wow. Yeah. We need to set up just our own offline conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's do it. Uh, a meeting in the minds of 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 guys who don't have it figured out of just what in the world does this mean for orality? You know, because yeah, that's right. Uh, but also online environment because so much mm -hmm. so much learning education training is online these days and well actually more than maybe we like perhaps because of, oh, yeah. because of the recent you know mm -hmm. pandemic and so forth so both of those are really critical mm -hmm. areas so huge yeah I'd, I'd say you and i should talk about this all right well thank you for joining us on this conversation we have gone 
for almost an hour and a half. And I'm, we're, I, I, I'm going to split this into two episodes so that people can really chew on it. Mm-hmm. It's just super valuable. And I'm certain that people are going to finish listening to these episodes and then just replay it again. Hmm. I appreciate you having me on, brother. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely try to have you back on the podcast as well. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us in uh, this conversation. I will put all the articles and different things we referenced in the discussion in the show notes. So go look there. As a, as a reminder, this show is sponsored by Mission One, and we're thankful for them for sponsoring this. Join us next time for the next episode. We appreciate you being here. Keep the conversation going. Mm-hmm.